Good morning. Grab your Bibles. We're jumping back in. Uh, hope you guys have had a good week. It's been pretty fantastic around here. We had rain. It's been in the 70s and, and rain, which is amazing, especially I'm talking about in the East Valley over here of, of uh, Arizona, Phoenix area. If you're in that area, you had rain. I know you did because it's been raining everywhere and it's been nice. And I know not for everybody. There's been some flooding and things and I hope that hasn't affected or hurt you, but uh, it's nice just to have some rain and some cooler temperatures finally. Anyway, that being said, we are in Tempe, Arizona. We This is not church. This is me unpacking the word so that tonight, together as the church, we can uh, sit down and talk around the word and kind of wrestle through what it says, uh, spend some time praying, hanging out, having some food. Man, we'd love for you to come. Hit us up online. We'll Tell you how to find where we are, and you can come join us. Love for you to be here and hang out with us. But right now, turn to Second Corinthians chapter eight, and we're moving through this whole series of a cross-shaped life. And uh, we've been holding as a theme First Corinthians chapter two, verse two, where Paul said, "I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." So today, continuing on the cross-shaped life. I'm calling this begging to give, which I know sounds kind of funny, but that's because typically when you see somebody begging, they are begging for you to give to them. But you ever seen anybody begging to give to you? Like, sincerely, please let me give to you. Uh, Would you describe yourself that way? As somebody who begs to give, who's just desperate for the opportunity to give and helping out uh, someone in need. What if you're broke? Maybe you're broke. Hey, man, I don't got any money. Maybe you're broke. Maybe you're the one that is in the status of beggar. I don't know. Would you still, even in those conditions, would you still seek every opportunity to give so that the kingdom of Christ can be advanced throughout the world? Would you still try to find that? Has it ever occurred to you that that's exactly what Jesus did for us? That's how the gospel got to you. And to me. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 9. And then I'm going to come back around to verse 1. And we're going to pick verse 9 up again next week. It's kind of a hinge point here for the whole chapter. So let me read it first. Verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's go back to verse 1. Uh, he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia or Greece. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much again for having the privilege to open your word, preach it, share it, discuss it, read it, memorize it, hold it. Lord, let let us all carry that burden, Lord, to to everybody you open a door for us to talk to. 
I know I'm preaching here, but it's not my word, it's your word. And I'm only being obedient to you based on what you've taught me. And I pray that others would do the same based on what they've learned from you. And uh, Lord, I pray that you're glorified in it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so I've been battling a little bit of a funk. So if you get if you hear a cough or a sneeze or something, I apologize. Try not to make any gross sounds if I can help it. But uh, anyway, there's an episode of The Big Bang Theory, and if you don't watch it, that's okay. It doesn't make any difference. But there's an episode where the, one of the main characters, Sheldon Cooper, uh, is considering the law of reciprocity, which basically what that says is that if somebody gives something to you, you're kind of under obligation to give something back of equal or greater value. But if you give something of greater value, then now they're bound to give back as well. So there's supposed to be some balance between what a gift, you know, the gift giving. So anyway, he's, he's having this moment at hand where he's going to be exchanging gifts with his next door neighbor across the hall in the apartment complex where they live. And her name is Penny. She's another main character. And so they're going to have a gift exchange and he's trying to wrestle with well, what should I get? Because I don't know what she's going to get, but it has to be equal. So what he does is he goes and he gets these gift baskets, and he gets multiple different size gift baskets, puts them all in his room, figures that once he sees what she's going to give him, he will get the appropriate basket, give it to her, and then return the others. That way he's worked it out. All right? So something else to know, by the way, Sheldon's a scientist and a big sci-fi nerd, geek, you know, that that kind of guy. And she is a waitress at the Cheesecake Factory. So Penny brings her gift to Sheldon, and it is a um, napkin. And when he sees it, he kind of smirks and laughs, thinking, man, even the smallest basket beats a napkin. Until she tells him that Leonard Nimoy, if you know who that is, is the actor that played... Uh, Spock on Star Trek had come into the restaurant and sat at one of her tables and that was the napkin and that he had signed it to Sheldon and Sheldon starts to freak out <laughs> and she says that you know he wiped his mouth with it and everything and he goes and then he starts to shake out of joy and excitement that that he has something that Leonard Nimoy actually put his face on so he goes back and he gets all the baskets and heaps them all on her. And, of course, she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I know, I know, it's not enough. It's not enough. Uh, there comes a time when a gift is so great, it's so personal, it's so thoughtful, that nothing seems like it's going to be an adequate response. And your heart kind of overflows with this desire uh to give back, but there's not really an adequate level that you feel like, you know, meets what you were given. Uh, come out of the TV world. Let's think about real life for a minute. I don't have to name any, but you know countless examples of someone who has died saving someone else's life, gave their life in order to rescue or save somebody. What was that worth? How do you repay that? You know, that's kind of where we're going today. So sometimes we think that giving is a responsibility of living a good Christian life. That's the way we address it. But if we truly consider what Christ has done for us by giving himself to us, by giving himself for us, then our giving should be something that we cannot be held back from. Like nothing can stop me from giving back. We want to heap it forward. Something we we're begging for. Please give us the opportunity to do. Even when it goes beyond what we're really able to give. I wish I had more, you know. 
So today there's no outline. We're just going to walk through this because it's pretty clear. It's pretty strong. Go back to uh, verse 9. We're going to start back there. Uh, and again, we'll pick it up from there next week. We're going to start here and then go backwards to chapter to verse 1. So verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you know and our. So he's talking to believers here. I know he's talking to Corinth. We've already established that. But just a reminder, this is two believers here. You know the grace of our Lord. What grace? Well, he says that though he was rich, Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Well, that's kind of the great exchange thing here. Paul's been hitting this thread up uh, already. For instance, back in chapter 5, verse 21, he says, For our sake... He made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Same kind of exchange, just like the one he's talking about here back in chapter 8, verse 9. But in order to clearly understand Paul's point in verse 9 here, we got to know what the currency is that equates to wealth. You understand what I'm saying? The currency that equates to wealth. In order to fully appreciate the grace of Christ here, we need to understand the currency. Otherwise, what did it cost, right? Um, obviously, we live in the West, and a big part of living here is Native American culture. Um, we as a church love and support Native American ministry and have a huge heart for that because it's a big part of the heritage of this part of the, the nation. And uh, But if you go back and you look and you study westward expansion and, and the pioneers that they were coming across and, and the uh, soldiers as well, and they began to interact with the natives, uh, they started swapping initially before it got ugly, but they were swapping and there were trades happening for you know horses. The natives were trading horses and furs and blankets. And in some cases, they were being traded uh, against U.S. bills, money. U.S. bills, cash bills, whatever. But to a lot of the natives, that was not acceptable to them. They would maybe take it, but they didn't have any idea what it was worth. And no concept of value. It's just paper. And for years, unfortunately, that would become a way that many pioneers and soldiers would take advantage of natives because they just didn't know what it was. The point is, the value of a horse to a native has to be weighed against the value of that piece of paper to a native. Both of them have to establish some kind of value to the same person. So what's the currency of Christ in this? What's the currency of Christ in this for us, to us? Well, it's his life. That, that, that's the currency, his life. Where did he spend that? On the cross. On the cross, right? What, what was it spent on? You. Me, was it a fair exchange? Was it a fair exchange? What's his net worth? <laughs> Creator of all things, what is his net worth? What's yours? Apart from him, I'm not trying to be hateful, I'm just saying, we're going to balance it out, right? Even if you gave all, even if you gave everything you had down to your very life, if you gave everything you had, is it enough to equate to a fair trade with Jesus for him giving all of him? Not a chance, man. But because and only because 
he values you. Because he loves you. Only because he desires you have you been saved by his complete sacrifice on that cross. By the price, the currency that he paid out. Only because of that. If you put your faith in him now, if you put your faith in him, if, if you are part of the hour and the we that Paul is talking about, if you put your faith in him, then your value has been determined by him, not you. Been determined by him, not by you. And he paid it. That's grace, guys. That's grace. This is what it means that we have been made rich. That's what it means being made rich. And this, in turn, is why we should beg to give all, to spend the grace that we've been made rich with. You understand that? To spend the grace that we've been made rich with. Romans 12, 1. Uh, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sac- as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Basically, give him your very life. Present your body to him. Give him your very life. Look at verse 1, chapter 8, back up. In light of that understanding, he says, We want you to know, brothers, brothers, again, continuing to point back to their family, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Again, Macedonia is the area we know of as Greece. Excuse me, it's where Corinth is located as well, to whom he is writing. So, the giving here, by the way, notice, is not just general charity. It's not saying we just walked out handing money out to the poor. It's in the context of what? Among the what? Churches. It's in the context of church. It's advancing the kingdom of Christ through meeting needs in a local church. Through a local church. Look, he says churches, plural. So it's not just all Christians in Macedonia in general. He's talking about churches. Groups of local churches, very specifically talking about that and making clear that the local church, whether it's us or whomever it is, should be doing more than just preaching at members. They should be taking care of each other, should be meeting needs. They should be uh, looking out and caring for each other as well as the lost and whatnot, but in this context, for each other, the needs of the saints, that's what they're supposed to be looking out for. Why? Because of the grace that they have received, or in our case, the grace we received. Look at verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance, these churches in Macedonia, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Wow, the adjectives Paul used in that. What are the severe tests of affliction? Severe means extreme or huge or out of the ordinary. Test of affliction. He doesn't explain what they are. But just put it in your brain. Extreme tests of affliction. And how do they have an abundance of joy? Abundance literally means more than full. More than full. So noticeable is this abundance of joy that Paul recognizes it in order to note it. How, how, what, what conditions get described as extreme poverty? Are you seeing these words in here? 
What kind of conditions are described as extreme poverty? Extreme there is to the maximum or the furthest, highest degree. That's what it means. What kind of poverty is that? How many, how many of us know poverty or see poverty? Now, people are quick to condemn the United States and go right after uh, the USA as a whole for not knowing real poverty. And that's just not fair. That's, if I'm just honest with you, it's just not fair. It's kind of prideful. It really, it's putting your middle or upper class, upper class self as the standard and then considering all Americans live in that. And so you imply the nation as a whole doesn't really know what it means to be poor. But that's wrong. And I'm not going to define what poverty is in America. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give you the stats on how many people live below the poverty line. I'm not going to do any of that. But I will say I have seen and regularly do see true poverty in America. I've seen it. Okay? It's there. Believe me. But how many times have you seen extreme poverty? What constitutes that? He doesn't clarify. What constitutes that? No home? No clothing, starving, you know, disease, sickness, malnutrition, uh, bad hygiene, I, I don't know, death. Uh, the, the, the fact that death is a constant reality for you. I mean, whatever it is, extreme poverty, he says. But notice that, <laughs> that the level of poverty here in those Macedonian churches is mixed with the abundance of joy. What's joy? What causes it? What causes joy? When do you typically experience joy? What do you imagine an abundance of it feels like? What do you imagine an abundance of joy feels like? Now, not an intense experience of joy. It's more like a storehouse full of it that's busting at the top and running over. How can that be present in extreme poverty? And joy and poverty together, they lead to overflowing generosity. Look what he said there. And Paul calls that wealth. So the currency here is generosity, and they overflow with it. So they're rich. That's what he's saying. They're wealthy because generosity is the currency and they overflow with it. So what triggers this whole equation? What makes this mix of joy and poverty that they already uh, possess to explode over into generosity that overflows? What makes all that happen? Affliction. See where, where he started it? Affliction. 2 Corinthians 7 uh, verse 5. We just came across last week. He says, for when we came into Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. So Paul's saying, when we came to Macedonia, we faced it, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. And he goes on to talk about Titus, but he's making a point that it was the affliction in the presence of joy and poverty here that overflowed into generosity of great wealth for these Macedonian people. But that equation only works with God who comforts. And that's grace. That's, that's grace. So what did their wealth of generosity lead to? Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means as I can testify. I'm a witness to it. I know it to be true. And beyond their means. Of their own accord. Begging us earnestly 
I mean, sincerely, they really did beg us sincerely for the favor of taking part in the relief, once again, of the saints, not the whole world, of the saints. The focus is on the church. So what does being rich in generosity look like? What does being rich in generosity look like? What do you picture that looks like? Giving from according to your means and beyond. And beyond. Think about that a minute now. Remember their condition. Affliction and poverty. Poverty now. Poverty. What means does poverty have? They gave beyond it, but what means does poverty have? What means does extreme poverty have? And man, how do you give beyond that? How do you give beyond extreme poverty? This stuff blows me away, guys. I'm going to be honest with you. Man, I'm going to be transparent. This one is a gut puncher for me. How can they be that way? Like, how do we get that way? Well, I think the best way is to consider the cross. Consider grace. That's the currency that paid for our salvation. Consider that. Also take note, by the way, of the reward here, the reward, the return on investment here. What is it? What does my seed sow for me? Nothing. Nothing. It, what, all it does, it, the, the return, it doesn't exist. It is only to advance Jesus' kingdom. That's it. It leads to the salvation of others. That's the, that's it. That is what it's doing. They're giving, they're overflowing, giving beyond their means, though they are in extreme poverty. That is only doing one thing. It's advancing Christ's kingdom and leading to the salvation of others. It's not about what it's going to pay them back or how they're going to end up having more than when they started. They're not even thinking about that. What's that worth to you? That's the question. What's the salvation of others worth to you? What's the advancement of Christ's kingdom through his church? What's that worth to you? So what happens when God's people give according to their means and beyond it? What happens? Well, his kingdom advances. Temples are built. Let me give you a couple of examples. The tabernacle, Exodus 36, verse 5. It says, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So the, the people building the tabernacle are telling Moses, man, the people have brought way more than we need. So Moses gave a command and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. They're giving overflowed and a temple for God was made the tabernacle the temple in Jerusalem you can go read it in your own time in first chronicles 28 and around there David was not permitted by God to build the temple but he wanted to desperately so he put every effort and sacrifice he could into getting everything in place so that all Solomon had to do was raise it up when God because God said Solomon would build it his son and that's exactly what he did a temple is built based on that giving and generosity of David and the others, the, the rest of the uh, people. The birth of the church. Acts chapter 2. This is when the church is born. Verse 44. 
The Holy Spirit has fallen on the people. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. All, all of, once again, the saints. This is that body taking care of that body. Not saying they never did anything for the poor outside of the church, but the attention of these verses is on believers taking care of believers as a family. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see this? He's building a temple. Where, where's the temple? Well, 1 Corinthians six 19, we've talked about it before. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And the word body there is plural. So he's saying your church body as well as your personal body, but your church body, local church body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this. If you're part of the temple of the Holy Spirit now, what's within your means to give? Think about it a minute. And now what's beyond your means to give? And why would you spend that? Why would you do it? Why would you spend what's beyond your means? Well, what would make you beg to be involved in the movement of the local church? We can say church planning. I mean, we're a church plant that's starting to try to grow here in Tempe, Arizona. But but we have already been setting aside money for three years towards the church that we want to see get planted down the road because our heart is for the growth of the church and the kingdom of God. What about relieving the burdens of the saints? Put it that way if that makes you feel better. Would you beg to be involved in that? How do you get that kind of heart? Maybe you want it, but you don't know how to get it. Well, verse 1, grace. Verse 6, grace. Verse 9, grace. He's repeated this phrase over and over and over. He wants you to see grace. Look at verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first, here's the key, to the Lord and then by the will of God to us, they gave themselves to the Lord first. Listen to me. If you give yourself first to him, everything you have, even yourself, is his anyway. It's his whether you admit it or not. But I'm just saying, if you give yourself to him first, then you've given him everything. There's nothing. What else are you going to get? What else, what else you have is not his at that point. Everything is his anyway at that point. And then that made it God's will that their giving goes to Paul. All right. Paul wasn't begging anybody for money. That's not, that's what I would say. He said, not as we expected. He wasn't begging anybody for money. He wasn't arguing for them to give to him. He wasn't doing any of that. They gave themselves to God and God, knowing that Paul needed the money or had needs or was meeting needs, whatever way, God knew that, hey, these people have given themselves to me. I'm going to take their money, and I'm going to put it in the hands of Paul. All right? Why? Because God's kingdom was the priority of both of them, both these Macedonian churches and Paul. So they're literally begging Paul to let them be a part of it. This is not a business transaction. Man, that grosses me out. It's not a business transaction going on here. You see the heart in all of this? What would church planning look like if established churches would take this attitude? I'm not trying to hate. I'm just asking, okay? I'm just asking. It's not about quarterly reports and return on investment. It's not about 
positions. One's the mother church. One's the baby church. The superiority complex there. It's not about paying for licenses or attending lengthy internships first. And I'm not, again, I'm not hating. I'm just saying, you know, our North American context, the church has become a really business-centric structure. And I can tell you right now, churches in North America typically are not described using terms like extreme poverty. Uh, typically not. So what if they were begging to give towards church planning? Again, I'm, we're a church, so I put myself in there too. Begging to give towards, towards church planning, towards relieving the burden of church planning. What if they were begging to do that? The, even to the point of being in extreme poverty and then still get begging to go beyond that. The key is, though, here that these brothers and sisters that Paul's speaking about, they must have truly felt the weight of grace. Being in Macedonia, they must have truly felt the weight of the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ had come to them all the way in Macedonia. That it had come to them, to, to who they were. They must have really felt that. And it wasn't about giving uh, with regrets, you know, man, I hate to let go of it, but here you go. It's not about giving out of responsibility. Yep, it's my job to give it. There it is. Check. Done. Given. Yep, the numbers add up. It's right. It's exactly what I'm supposed to give. Done. Give. Not that. It's not even about cheerful giving here in this text. It's about giving because they understand that they were only saved because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And that currency is priceless. Priceless. So what do you take from this? Where do we go with this? What do we do with it? How do you get a heart that earnestly, honestly, sincerely begs for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, as Paul put it? Maybe you want to be like that, but if you're honest, it's not you. Maybe you want to get there, though. Well, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you get there? Some might say, well, you give a little bit, and then you give a little bit more, and then you give a little bit more. Uh, I, I, that might be great. I'm not going down that road. I think probably if I were to suggest something, I would say you focus on the cross. Focus on the cross. The more you revisit it, the more grace revisits you. Look at it. Think about it. Read books on it. Put time into it. Don't just say, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. No, 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 no. Stop a minute and think about that. The more you revisit it, and man, this cuts me too. The more that you think about that, the more that you own that, the more that you realize that if it were only you, he'd have done it. Woo, man, I'm, I'm telling you, you spend each day meditating on that and then just release your hold on what's not yours anyway. Now, I'm not trying to say this as somebody's got it figured out. I got definite struggles with this, like the rest of us, I think. And I would love to have that heart. And I think that's the path towards it for all of us. I really do. And look, maybe you're watching this, listening to me, and you, you don't, you, the gospel, what, what are we talking about here? Jesus, what are we talking about? Maybe you're familiar with the, some of the language of him dying on a cross, but you don't really know the whole story. Well, the whole story is this. You, I, my wife, my children, all of us, my grandparents, all of us throughout history, all the way back to Adam, were born into sin. Adam chose a 
uh, he was created by God. He was the first person and he chose a destiny that was without God's direction. God gave him an opportunity to follow him. Instead, Adam said, I will follow what I think is right. And sin entered the world. Since then, we all face that. And I don't have to prove this to you. You know it's true because nobody's perfect. We say that all the time. That's the same thing. It's just we don't use the word sin. But to say nobody's perfect is to acknowledge that everybody sins, right? So what do we do about it? How do we get right with God if we've sinned against him and we enter this world in that state already? Well, we can't. Our gifts don't exchange. You know what I'm saying? He is infinitely greater. So what happens? We just hope we're good enough. We just hope. No, no, no. He came to us. He entered this world born of a virgin because that way he didn't inherit the sin of his father. Born of a virgin, all man, all God, lived a sinless life that you and I can never hope to accomplish. Lived a sinless life and then, yes, went to a cross, nailed there for our sin because that's where we're supposed to go. Was it was brutal. It was ugly. It was horrible. Why did it have to be that way? I, I, look, the plan of God, I'll tell you, if anything, it should show you how much he loves you, that he would go to that horrible uh, death. But that's not the end of the story. Three days later, he rose from the grave. Paul talks about uh, 500 people witnessing that him alive at one point in time and says that many of those are still alive, meaning you can go ask them. The witnesses were off the charts. So many people that were alive and saw him alive. He is alive. And John 3.16, very familiar voice, verse, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the picture of it. You access that forgiveness by faith. Can you put your faith in him? Can you trust him with your life? Can you give him your life and say, hey, it's yours, Lord. I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me. It's yours. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's a, just a simple way of saying if you can own it, and trust it, that's what it takes. I pray you do that today, man. Tell him however you want to. And then let us know, man. We want to pray with you and pray for you. I don't care where you are. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. It's so awesome. Thank you, as always, for the privilege of sharing it and unpacking it. Help us all have a heart uh, that would be overflowing with joy, even in affliction, that though we are in extreme poverty, that we would give beyond uh, our means, Lord only because we know that you did or that you gave all being rich you became poor for our sake that we might become rich with grace let us spend that grace on others and we ask this in christ's name amen